Assalamu alaikum, brother. It's amazing to have you here, brother Latif Nevard. Did I do I say your name right? Nevard, Nevard. How do you say that? Nevard. Nevard. So I'm trying to say it with a Farsi accent, which is weird. Nevard. Yeah. Thank you for accepting my invitation to being on this um, podcast with me. Oh, it's my pleasure that you invited me. So. I think we're the only two people that have our background where we both went to Nevada State Prison and afterwards went to Qom. So we're we're two of a kind here. I, I think we might possibly be the only two. I think so. I don't, I don't, inshallah, there might be someone after us, but who knows? But it's unlikely. It wouldn't be a bad thing. It definitely, no. it would be a good thing if they came out and went to call. 100%, 100%. So, let me know a little bit about your journey, because we weren't in prison at the same time. So, I know I was in prison before you, and when I left, you you came in, and we knew some similar people. So, Brother Abdullah, for instance, I was in the cell with him. We were cellmates, and then you knew him in Nevada State Prison afterwards. I never met Mustafa, who's who you knew there because he went to Nevada State Prison after I left. So he was in, I think, Ely Prison, right? So how, what's, what was the situation like there? How, what's your story? How did, how did you get into Islam? Did you, were you Muslim before you went to prison? What's, what's the deal? So the first, I, I went to prison twice, actually. The first time I went to prison, um, I really didn't, I considered myself something of an agnostic. Like, I believed there was a God, but I didn't think anybody had it right. Um, my original background was Catholic. I went to Catholic school. Um, when I was a teenager, I dabbled in some Baptist and uh, Lutheran churches. Um, but the whole you have to accept the sun thing wasn't working out for me. Mm. So I started researching some other things, uh, Judaism, a few other religions, and... Nothing really stuck, so I eventually came to a point, all right, I know we didn't just pop into existence randomly, so something definitely put us here, but I don't think anybody's got it right. I never quite got to Islam, um, but with my background in Christianity, I got really good at going through the Bible, and I have uh, something of a knack for finding contradictions and things. Okay. So I had something of a, a misguided hobby of going to Bible studies, and uh, waiting for them to hit the right verses, and then I would like to just bring these things onto the table and see how they'd answer them. Mm. Um, and when I was in prison, there was this brother who the Muslims kept coming after. Because in prison, um, in, in the U.S., you know this, the majority of the brothers are African-American, and a lot of them, their background comes from Nation of Islam. Yeah. And then they'll, after they get a little wiser, they'll switch over to maybe Sunni Islam, or if they perfect it to a higher degree, they'll come to Shia Islam. Um, but so there was this one brother, a little youngster, and uh, he had a little, a lot of trouble with gangs and things like that. And the the Muslims were trying to like convert him and bring him in, but he didn't really know how to deal with it. And he'd seen me deal with a lot of the Christians, so he's like, one day he comes to my cell and he brings a Quran, and he's like. I want you to go through this book and find all the problems with it so I can just get rid of them. So I was like, all right, challenge accepted. Yeah. So I took this Quran 
Mm. And I went through it. I went through it once. And I, every time I'd come across something, I'd get excited. I'd highlight it. And I'd put a little note in the margin with a pencil. And I was comparing it because I noticed in the beginning it was very similar to Bible. So I was using the Bible as like a, a, a metric to gauge Quran in terms of accuracy. And I kept noticing, oh, you know, in this story, in Bible, it's worded this way. And in Quran, it's worded that way. So there's like differences. So I was being unfair at first, mm. uh, as though the Bible is a good metric to use. And like, I already know there's problems with it. So why would I use that as a metric for something else? But I didn't come to that conclusion until towards the end. So I made it through the first time. And when I finally hit that realization, why am I using a broken ruler to measure something else? Um, I said, let me do this again. Let me see if it's consistent with itself. Mm. So I went through Quran again. And then I was like, no mistakes. I was like, this can't be right. <laughs> I must have missed something. Let me do this again. And over the course of four months, I went through that book about seven times. Four I months, seven it. times from front to back. Front to back, cover to cover, the Yusuf Ali translation. Mm. And finally, after like he kept coming after, coming after me after a month, after two months, he's like, come on, you got to find something. I was like, dude, if God has a book, <laughs> this is his book. Mm. Like, no doubt this book is consistent with itself. I can't even pick up like a 12-page leaflet that doesn't have some like contradiction within itself. Mm. And the Yusuf Ali translation is like 412 pages. I'm like, not anything in here is self-contradictory. And even times you think it might be, if you take all of the verses that speak on that subject together, they clarify themselves. So I'm like, there's nothing in here that 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 points to like that dabbling of man to mess it up. I was like, so for me, that was my accepting of Islam. Mm. At that point, I was like, all right, I found the book. <laughs> now I just need to figure out how this religion works. Well, so you, so you, this is amazing because it's very, it's actually very similar to my story. There are differences, obviously, but it's similar because I remember with myself as well, I did self-study too. So I went and I started looking at different religions because I got a spark to try to figure out, you know, there's a God. I want to I wanna look at these religions and see if any one of them kind of fits with me. And I looked at Christianity, Judaism, even some like Buddhist, Hare Krishna type religions that I didn't, didn't really stay with for too long. But uh, I looked at Islam. So in, in Los Angeles, Islam was looked at as like a, a cool religion, at least in like the the poorer neighborhoods, right? So that kind of gave me a push to look into it. So I, I looked into Islam and I actually converted before I went to prison. But there were, I didn't look at it anywhere nearly as extensively as you did. I was 16 years old at that time and I read the Quran before I accepted Islam and I read a few books about Islam, but nothing as deep as you reading it seven times in four months. Inshallah, we could do that now. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's great. So, all right. So now you're in prison and you've just came to a realization by yourself that this, this, if God sends a book, this has to be the book. And where do you go from there? Okay. So there, my resources are incredibly limited. Yeah. Uh, there is no internet in prison. So from there, you kind of talk to the brothers there and you start to realize very quickly, like, alhamdulillah, if somebody accepts Islam, like on any level, that there's, there's a lot of respect for a person to make that leap. 
Um, and as much as I want to say, like, for my, I hold myself to a higher standard than I hold others. So I want to know everything about something if I'm going to be in it, in it or involved in it or participate in it. Other people just accepting is enough. So a lot of them don't have the answers I'm looking for. Um, but eventually, you know how you get like shuffled around the system. They're like, okay, you've spent enough time on this yard. Now you're going to go to this yard. Now we're going to send you to this conservation camp. And so I, I went through a transitional phase where I started moving around a lot. Um, and then finally I got to the last facility I was going to be at before I got my parole. And there was a couple of really good brothers there. No Shia at the time. We're all Sunni brothers. They're all good brothers, incredible brothers. And it was in Ramadan of 2000. 2004, um, end of 2003. Um, and so we were talking, they're like, okay, so you accept Islam? I'm like, yeah. So like, all right. So every Friday they'd have a different brother lead the, you know, do the khutbah and lead the prayer. And they're like, right, so you're going to do that? I'm like, I don't know how. It's like, well, you said you're Muslim. I'm like, I accept this book, but I mean, I don't, I don't understand all the things that go with it. And they're like, all right, you know how to pray salat? And I'm like, what? <laughs> the book just says pray. So yeah. I was praying. So they, they're like, no, no. They, so they explained a lot of the differences. They mm -hmm. taught me how to, to pray Salat. They taught me the concept of fasting, all the rules behind it. And then the month of Ramadan, I took my Shahada. And then in like the month of Ramadan, I got a super quick crash course in prison Islam. And then like right after Ramadan was done, I got my parole. I was shifted to another facility that had no Muslims on the yard. Or at the very least, I will say they only had NOI Muslims on the yard. Mm -hmm. And then I was kicked out onto the streets. So when I got out of prison, my knowledge was very limited. Yeah. And I'm very resourceful with the internet. And I get very frustrated when I get nothing but bad information on the internet. Mm -hmm. So I had initially started by like trying to look up stuff online. And I kept finding a bunch of contradictory articles. You do it this way, no, you do it that way. And I was getting really frustrated with it. So I tried going to a few centers. And unfortunately, where I was at the time, those centers don't take kindly to white people just coming in off the street saying they're Muslim, but they don't know. It's like there's like that quick test, like, oh, okay, you're Muslim. Who's this person? Who's that person? How do you do this? How do you do? Okay, you're not really a Muslim. You don't know these things. Oh, wow. So I was treated kind of cold. That's, but where, where was this? This was in Las Vegas. Wow, because that, that completely different story in Los Angeles. So when I when I Vegas. I was in I was in Los Angeles County Jail when I first got arrested, and then I got bailed out. So my bail got dropped down to an amount that my parents were able to put up, and I got bailed out. And I was out on the streets for a short period of time before I went to prison. And in that short period of time, I had made a decision that look, I want to change my life around. I want to I want to connect more with the religion that I chose. And I started going to masjids, and I didn't know anything about Sunni or Shia at that time. So I went to this masjid, I remember it was Masjid Omar in uh, Los Angeles, it was near USC. And they were very welcoming. Like, I had no knowledge of anything when it came to religion, but I remember going there, and I remember just being welcomed. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're fasting here, you get, to, you get to drink over there. But I remember we were... Uh, like they were very, what's it called, welcoming, and I don't know, a completely different experience I had with that. But anyways, yeah, keep going. So yeah, there were three centers I knew of in Vegas, and in all three of them, I got kind of a cold shoulder treatment, mm. almost like that, 
you know, he knows enough, but not enough. It's almost like I felt like they thought I was a spy or something. I was just infiltrating to see what was going on. This is, keep in mind, this was in 2003, early 2004. Yeah. So this was right after 9-11. So I, I can imagine there might have been some reasons why they were that way. Mm. So for the next few years, I, I maintained my faith, but like I didn't progress in my knowledge. And my life reached the point where like I felt like it was getting away from me and as things happened to go, Allah put me in a position where I was ready to go back to prison. Mm-hmm. I put myself in a position where I was ready to go back to prison and Allah saw it the rest of the way through. I made it I remember very specifically when I found myself first in trouble again, I was like, How did I end up back here? And then I remember wanting to to pray and ask Allah for guidance. Mm. And I remember standing on the prayer mat. I'm like, you know, I've been out of prison. I've accepted Islam. It's been four years. And I still don't feel comfortable making salat. Like I still, I'm questioning everything I'm doing. And I'm still like, is this right? Is that right? And I was like, if I get through this, I just want to learn. I just want to devote everything. And I want to like learn this because this is the most important thing in my life. Mm. If I fail everything else and I do good at my religion, that's the only thing that matters. So whatever happens, I prayed to Allah. I just gave up on the prayer I was trying to do. And I just wanted to do it. Like whatever is best for me to get closer to you, you make that happen. That's what I want. That was my prayer. And I'll never forget it. Mm. It was the, the night before I went in for my sentencing hearing. Yep. And I was sure they were going to give me probation. <laughs> and I was... Utterly surprised when they said, okay, you're going back to prison for at least two more years. And I was like, yeah. okay, I did ask for what's best. So I'm just going to sit back and see how this plays out. Mm-hmm. And then from here, it was like nothing but the hand of Allah in every affair. I went, they sent me to the wrong facilities time and time again. Um, it started, I was in, I was put in the wrong tank with the wrong roommate, but the prison didn't even know why I was in there. They couldn't explain it. But this guy knew all the Muslims on the yard, and he got me connected with all the right people. And then from there, they sent me to the wrong prison. They sent me to a prison specifically for medical, medically disabled people. And I'm like, there's nothing wrong with me. I was like, why am I here? And they're like, we don't know. And I was like, well, send me somewhere else. They're like, we can't. And that's where I first, the first time I ever met a Shia brother. And it was Abdullah. Yeah. And it was at Carson City, uh, or it was uh, Warm Springs in Carson City. And in four months, me and him just had so many conversations. He had just this library of books. And it was funny because leading up to my going to prison, I was researching Islamic schools, but not knowing anything about Sunni and Shia. I was like, what is like the Harvard of Islamic seminaries? And I kept coming to Al-Azhar University. Yeah. So in my mind, I was like, if everything goes smooth, I'm going to try and like get accepted and go to, go to this Al-Azhar University and study there and, and learn my religion. So I had this idea I wanted to go study in a seminary or an Islamic college. Mm. And then I met him and we started having all these conversations. And then he never told me he was Shia. Yeah. He let me, just, let me he, stop you there for one minute. I remember, right. I remember meeting this brother as well. So I want to just talk a little bit about him for a bit because I know for myself I definitely consider that he's someone who's saved my life who has had an enormous influence on my life and I don't think I'd be anywhere near where I am now if it wasn't for him so he's definitely someone that 
you know, I'm always going to keep close to in my heart. And I remember when I went into prison, right? So in Nevada State Prison, they, at least at this time, because they took a lot of us at once. So there was a lot of people who were entering the yard at the same time. So they made one of the modules the intake, right? And we had to walk past the yard to get to this module. And the yard was locked up and everything. And I remember as I was walking past this yard, all of these people, you know, none of them had shirts on. There were tattoos everywhere. They they come and they stare at you and they scream at you. And I'm like, oh, my God, what am I getting myself into? And I went into intake. And when we got released from intake, I walked out and I was going to the yard. And I remember the, I didn't know at the time, but he was the head blood of the yard. And he saw me walking and he didn't like the way I was walking. So he was like, why are you walking with your chest out? And I was like, yeah, whatever. And I was like, all right, now I'm going to have to get into, get, get into it with this guy and he's probably going to kill me or something. I was, I was worried. And I went into the yard and I went and I found the Muslims. And there was a group of Muslims. I, I recognize them. They're all wearing their little kufi hats. And I went up to them and said, Salaam Alaikum, Alaikum Salaam. And we started talking. And they asked me if I was Shia at that point. Right? So Abdullah was on the yard. And I think there must have been some kind of argument or debate with them because the Sunni Shia issue was something that was one of the first questions they asked me. And I had already determined that I was Shia without much knowledge. It was, we'll get into that story some other time. But I had already felt that I was Shia. So I said, I'm Shia. They said, oh, okay, well, we're Sunni. But I'll introduce you to one of the Shias on the yard. And I remember waiting for him. And he came and he had on the, his head was shaved. And he had like a, a moon with a star on the top of his head like he had carved it out from his hair and he walked in he had a cane and he he came up to me like the the biggest smile in the world always smiling laughing he just the first second i saw him is just you know i i connected right away and alhamdulillah from there he was able to to teach me more about religion to guide me in the right way and he, I didn't know much about Sunni Shia before, and he taught me all of that. He, he taught me how to pray correctly. He taught me, like, wudu and ghusl and everything. Like, every, you know, ibtidai or, you know, preliminary aspect of the religion that I needed to know, he taught me. And he had all those books as well. So he had those books for a long time. And obviously, he got them from Brother Ali from Reno. But... He had, there was this library, and I remember reading these books, and every, you know, I'd finish a book every two, three days, and we'd repeat them. Um, it was amazing. It was amazing to have him there, but I'd love to hear your experience with him. So, so similar experience, I got to Warm Springs, and the, you know, first thing you do, meet the Muslims, and, uh, but he was the first one I met, and he asked me, he's like, so are you Sunni or Shia? And I was like, you know, when I accepted Islam, the brothers I talked to said, uh, the, the, those Shia guys, they're like mushrikeen, they're like polytheists, they're on some other stuff. Um, but we're not supposed to be sex, but if you had to pick one, you're, you're a Sunni. So I explained it to him the way it was explained to me, and he just kind of smiled, and he's like, okay. He's like, and he never said that he was Shia. 
And then he started asking me questions. What do you know about this? I don't know anything. What do you know about the family of the Prophet? I don't know anything. I didn't know he had a family. I thought he was by himself. He's like, what do you know about his daughter? He's like, he had a daughter? He's like, I didn't know these things. Um, I didn't know much about anything outside of Quran. I'd never even picked up a book of Hadith. I didn't even know what a Hadith was. Mm. Um, so he started sharing these books with me. And then, you know, he'd watch me make prayer and he'd smile and he'd be like, I had this book. Maybe you want to read it. And it's got all these little rules and how to do things. And I was like, oh, that would be awesome. I, I've been looking for something like that. Slowly, bit by bit, we'd have these conversations and he'd ask me these questions. And, you know, a lot of questions about Ahlul Bayt. And I didn't, at the time, get the significance of it. But then he gave me this, this tafsir that he had. And I just was eating it up. Like, I just, it was so much information. It was like everything I wanted to know. Was it that one, and, volume one, black... Um, yes, it was uh, the Esbi Maramidali Agapuya. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I read that introduction and all cover to cover uh, in the course of like four months. It kept coming at me because he's very protective over his library. He's like, "You done with that book yet?" Well, almost, almost. Just give me one more time. He gave me a. Uh, so after I finished that, I finished these rule books. Um, he gave me the Najwa Balaga. And I remember when I was reading that, this thought had come to my mind. I'm like, who wrote this book? I'm like, everything I read before this, all these little Sunni, like the little pamphlet books and things. I'm like, these are like kindergarten books. I'm like, what is this? This is like high level college PhD level material when you compare everything else to it. Mm -hmm. um, and then finally one day is like, so tell me what you've understood. And I explained everything I'd understood about you know, the family of the Prophet, the Ahlul Bayt, and he's like, you're Sunni. And, that, you know, or you're just like, you're Shia now. And I'm like, those are fighting words. <laughs> so he's like, no, this is the knowledge of the Shia. He's like, all this that you, you're absorbing, everything you, you, you've come to accept, this is what we believe. We don't worship the, the Aima, you know, they have a place, but it's a higher place than, say, some of these companions. He explained a lot of this, and then I was like, okay, I guess I'm Shia then. So I, at, at, it was almost like at that moment, I had seen how all of those things that happened that shouldn't have happened all happened for a reason to put me in contact with him. The next month or two, it, it was very short after I met him. Like for four months we were together, then within a month or two after that, they, they or reassigned me to a camp which was going to separate us. Um, and in that short time, he introduced me to Mustafa, he introduced me to his brother Hakim, and he introduced me to Ali Tazarvi in Reno and said, whatever you do, make sure you get into contact with him when you get out. He told me about you. He showed me all the pictures of you in Lebanon and in Gaul. He told me how he told me about your, your journey and, and how you had gone to, to study after. He explained how it to me. He was like, you know, you want to go study after this. He's like, you should contact Sheikh Ahmed Bukhar and when you get out and you should go this route because this is really you want to go to Qom or Najaf and you want to go study there because that's where the knowledge is. Mm. Um, so that was, it was like I had that, that very rough goal, yeah. like an unfinished diamond. It was like I knew roughly what I wanted to do, but I hadn't picked the route to get there. Yeah, I was, was like, saying, I was in LA. Yeah, it was like it was, you're in LA and you want to get to New York. There's a hundred roads you can take to get there, but which one? Yeah. He gave I did, me the I, did the, I had the same journey where... 
the books that that he had i would read the books and i was amazed by him i was like wow like look at this knowledge look at all this information the way they put everything together was just it was it blew my mind and then all of them are from Ansarian publications in Qom. Yes. So I'm like, all right, there's something something here in Qom. And there was one book. It was called 10 Decades of Ulama's Struggle. I don't know if he still had that book. And it went through kind of 10 decades of scholars in Iran leading up to the Islamic Revolution. And then the last chapter, though, described the Hausa. And it described the studies that you do, and just gave like an overall general description of what the Hausa is. And I said, yep, that's what I want. I'm going to go there. So I made that decision in while I was still in prison, and Ali Tazarvi helped me a lot with that decision as well. And I made that decision, and I was like, all right, that's definitely something I want to do. And then when I got out, I was just trying to figure out how I get there. And it took me a few years to figure out, I think it took me two, two and a half years to figure out a way to get from Los Angeles to home. And I, I, I think we're, doing we're very similar in that point as well. Because yeah. um, after I got out of prison, all right, now I had a very clear, focused goal. I knew what I wanted to do. Um, I had financial obstacles at the time to get in order to be able to get my passport. So as soon as I got out, um, I met up with the brother Hakim and tried to, I was like, all right, one of my first mistakes when I got out the first time was I really didn't put myself in a community and I tried to do everything by myself. And I can definitely see Allah's reason for emphasizing on community. Mm. It's like, it's very easy to stray on your own, but when you're with, you know, the flock or the herd, so to speak, it's very easy to stay in the, the direction you need to be going. Um, so I at least wanted to keep close ties with some brothers and like see them as frequently as possible to keep myself in check. Yeah. Um, and that's and what then, that's what you didn't do the first time. That's what I didn't do the first time. Exactly. Um, and same and story then, with me as well. When I converted to Islam, I didn't gravitate towards any Muslims. And for the for the first short period of time, I was all into Islam. But because I I didn't associate myself with any Muslims or any brothers, it kind of slowly went away. Like that that desire inside of me, that motivation slowly went away until I went back to prison. So it's yeah. it's a very similar thing where if you're not with the community and you don't you don't surround yourself around like minded individuals with similar goals, it's hard to keep on track. Hundred percent I agree with that. Yeah, no, I, it was it was really the the being around Muslims and around the community that kept me focused. And then one day I always had this number of Ali Tazarvi, but I was always kind of shy to call it. And apparently Hakim had been going up there once a month to visit the community in Reno. So one day he's like, why don't you just come up with me? You know, just meet, introduce yourself. I'll, I'll go with you so, you know, you can, because he saw, I'm, when I'm around people I don't know, I tend to be a little shy. Mm -hmm. So he's like, no, I'll come up there, I'll do the introductions. So he brought me up to Reno for the first weekend. And we would go up there on a Thursday night for Dua Kamel, and then Friday for the khutbah. And then Saturday he would take like, a, you know, real little, bit of a break and relax and then Sunday he would have a tafsir class and I remember sitting in his tafsir class the first time like the first time I met him he was just the nicest most humble person I had ever met the best akhlaq of anybody to date that I've ever known he's just always smiling always warm and he just always wants to be helpful especially with knowledge if you have a question 
And, but I'll never forget the class. It started at 10 o'clock in the morning, and his wife, Mitra, would be in the kitchen cooking, preparing tea, and getting all, you know, lunch ready and dinner, and she just preparing. There's always a smell of Iranian food coming from the kitchen. And he would be going through his tafsir lesson, and he would pick like one ayat of Quran. And we would start at 10 in the morning. And that first day, he went till 9 o'clock at night doing tafsir of this ayat and explaining the meaning of every word and bringing hadith about it. And all of this information, I was just like, where have you been the last five years? Why did I not know you sooner? You could have answered so many of my questions. At that point, I just wanted to stay in Reno, but my work was in Vegas. So for the next four months or so, I told my work, I have to change my schedule. I only work four days a week now. And then every Thursday night, I get in my car and drive straight up to Reno and try and make it in time for the Dua Kamel program. And I leave Sunday night after the Tafsir program. For four months, I was doing that until I was able to actually move up there for a few months. Mm. And he helped me a lot in giving me guidance in terms of where I should go, what I should study. And he gave me a lot of helpful information. I love Iran. I love the Hausa. But his advice was very crucial in not making a mistake I've seen a lot of people make. And he was very big on main, like he's like, you have a very good head on your shoulders and a very good way of looking at things. Don't just accept things because people tell you to. Like there's certain things that like there's an inherent truth to it. And if when you grasp those things, don't just buy and bite whatever anybody else says. And he's like, sometimes you have to, especially because he was Iranian, he's like, I know my people. So sometimes you have to kind of like maybe play the game and just nod your head. But he's like, there's certain things that you'll learn that you know are right. Don't forget that. Just get the information you need. Don't move to Qom and don't live in Iran for the rest of your life and stay there. Do something useful. Um, be like a, 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 a career Taliban. But he said, but he's like, if you go there, just keep these things in mind and just remember that. And I've had teachers after that that I highly respected that have also emphasized on that is if you have a certain mentality and you learn that, don't lose it when you go to Hausa. And he said, don't lose touch with society. Like a lot of people might go to Qom and stay there for 10, 15, 20 years, and they have become so institutionalized to Hausa, they can no longer relate to people when they come home. And it's just like somehow like they're on a totally different level. Yeah. But I don't know if that's a good level that they're on because th there's no relation with the people. I see that um, a lot. Like I see, not a lot, but there's definitely some some of our ulama who who they can't connect with people. And yeah. it's kind of a waste. They have this knowledge and they have no way to impart it on the people because th there's no connection. They've, they've lost it. And it's, there's... Between the things I learned from Ali Tazarvi, Rahmatullah and the things I've learned from one of my teachers, Malana Beg, um, there's a, and watching how they would, would interact with their respective communities, I learned a, a lot from those two in terms of you have to maintain a relation with the people. Yeah. Like you have your relationship with Allah, but if you're taking this course where you want to take this information from the Hausa and you want to do like the, uh, a tool for the imam and a tool for Islam and a tool for Allah to propagate his religion, you have to maintain a connection with society on, in terms of relatability. Yeah. If people can't relate to you, 
or and you can't relate to them, you're not going to be able to impart any information. Yeah, I think, one of the- I think I made a mistake when I went to Qom. And I went to Lebanon first and then Qom with, with regards to that, where I felt I was always someone who is in touch with the community. I would visit um, pretty much on average once a year. I would come back and visit Los Angeles and I'd hang around the brothers there. But the problem is that I would only hang around brothers who were already very religious and at the center. And I never really interacted with with people who weren't, obviously apart from my immediate family. Now, when I ended up moving back to the West, I realized, whoa, there's... Not everyone's like this. There's there's a whole uh, a whole segment of the community, and not just not just a small segment. The majority of the community are not those ultra religious individuals that we connect with, and we could talk about all our studies in Qom, and they're already you know highly motivated to have these conversations. So I remember that yeah, there was definitely a learning curve when I when I moved back that I need to take a step back, and I need to kind of see where everyone is. Because also before I went to to the Hausa, I wasn't really involved in the community either. So I never really knew the intricacies of the Shia community or the Muslim community in the West until I moved back from, from the Hausa. So it's definitely an important thing to do. And I think in hindsight, I would have definitely concentrated more on that because the, the stronger you are at being able to connect with people and and build upon those connections, the stronger effect you'll have on their lives. So what do you do to make sure that you are able to keep that connection? I, I, for whatever communities I, I dabble in, um, I like to try and come around, you know, Ramadan, the Eids and uh, Muharram and see everybody. And then when I'm in those communities outside of the peak uh, masjid uh, traffic times, mm-hmm. I like to see who's missing. Yeah. Those are the people I try and go hang around with, the ones that don't regularly attend uh, masjid, mm-hmm. because that's where I, I can really start to learn, like, each community has its own problems. Each community deals with different issues, and it's the people who aren't the super religious types who, by the way, usually scare me. <laughs> what are you doing? The ones that walk around with the tasbih all day just... SubhanAllah, SubhanAllah. They, they sometimes they're, they're too follower-like and, and very close-minded, and they're out of touch with their own communities. Mm. Um, and really for the work that, that you know, trying to accomplish and the, the reason I'm in Qum, it's like these aren't the people I'm trying to help. It's the people that aren't showing up to the masjid that need the help. And they need somebody that can talk to them and put it in terms that will make them actually question what they're doing and how they can improve it and hear it from somebody that's going to give it some weight. Like, hey, I'm this guy who wasn't a Muslim. Now I am. I've been to prison twice. Like, I'm not somebody who was like 16, went to Hausa, was there for 15, 20 years and like some floating between like Ulama, like somewhere between Ismat and... uh and uh, Adalat, <laughs> you know, if there was a position between those two stations, like that's where the, the super high ulama sometimes are perceived to be sitting. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not an unapproachable person because I see that with the people I deal with in the communities when these certain scholars come and they're perceived as that super mutaki, super high elevated person. 
these lower people don't even want to go talk to them and ask questions because they're ashamed. Yeah. They're afraid. But then when they sit around with certain scholars that are very chill, relaxed, and in touch with the community, man, the questions they ask, there's like, you know, the highest, uh, the there's no shame in, in when it comes to asking these questions. There's like everything that needs to be asked is being asked because they're yeah. comfortable. Yeah. So yeah. I look for those people that in the community and usually, you know, each culture is a little different in how they do it. But like, you know, a lot of the groups that, you know, you'll see each masjid has its little subgroups mm-hmm. and you try and get in a friend, one or two friends in each subgroup. And then you go hang out with each group, you know, on different nights, go to the hookah bar, lounge, the baraza, um, and just, you know, talk to them, see what kind of issues they're facing. I do better on the one-on-one. Sometimes we have like little group sessions yeah. where we'll answer questions and we'll put it in relatable terms, mm-hmm. you know, that they'll understand, you know, I'm. I try to give them the spectrum when I give them an answer. It's not like, okay, this is the absolute best you can do and then leave it at that. I'm like, no, there's levels to it. So, like, yeah. you need to hit this mark here, but you could hit this mark or this mark or this mark. If you want to do the best, you're shooting for up here. But at least be doing this thing right here. Like, if you're not doing this, we need to have a discussion on what we can do to improve that. Yeah. Uh, so I, th- I've had luck dealing with the communities in, on, like, the, that level. Um, and I, I've tried to remember that in from watching and observing, like, say, Milana Begin and Ali Tazardi, um, in how they did a lot of one-on-one work and, like, small group work mm-hmm. and how effective it was. Like, Ali Tazardi kept his community very close-knit. Mm-hmm. I've never anywhere in the, in the world seen a community like what was in Reno when he was there, having the entire Jamaat come two, three times a week, and then on Sundays, and sometimes we were there till one or two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. I mean, these were 14, 15-hour sessions on Tafsir. <laughs> uh, at some point in time, his wife would have to chase us away. Let my husband go to sleep. Get out of the house. Go, go, go. <laughs> <laughs> He'll keep talking if you let him. Just let, let him get some sleep. He needs some rest. Mm. Um, no, I just to, to see the, the dedication and same with Milana Beg, like as long as people are coming to you looking for advice, you know, work with them and try and help them, but don't chase them down. Like don't, if somebody doesn't want advice, then they're not ready for it. Yeah. There's something else I've learned too. I've seen some people go, you know, chasing the community members down. And that was another thing I've seen. And a lot of, uh, a huge issue with these scholars that come from the East and have never been in America before but they spoke a little bit of English and somehow got a green card. And some center was like, oh, it would be perfect to have him come here. And they don't understand the culture here. Uh, it's a very relaxed culture here. And when somebody's ready, they'll come to you. Mm. Uh, that's one of the things I learned from them. Um, so after Reno, continuing on my journey, um, I remember I honestly felt if I stayed in Reno, I would have stayed there forever. Um, and I was like, but I really like this. I feel that there's certain things I'm only going to get if I go to house and I need to, if I don't make that move, I'm never going to. Um, so, but I need, I still had a stepping stone to get there. I did a little research and at the time. There was a house in Dearborn, Michigan. So I was like, all right, I'm going to go there first, finish college. And then I'll go over to house. And I went to Michigan and that house had shut down like the week before I got there. I was like, really? <laughs> so, funny. so I was like, all right. Uh, something, sometimes things work out for reasons that you can't foresee. Allah knows best. Then you went so with Milana Beg, right? I remember. Yeah. 
That's now this is this is where our, our our paths are about to cross. So, for the next two years, I finished college. I was working. I got all my financial issues taken care of. This is now two years out of prison, and Muslim Congress in 2012 was in Dearborn that year, mm. and I remember at the time. Uh, was at a restaurant and I came out. It was at the Famous Burger in, in Detroit or in Dearborn. And I saw a little flyer from Muslim Congress and I saw your name on it. Wow. And I was like, <laughs> one of the guest speakers, Sheikh Ahmed Waqar. And I was like, all right, that's it. I'm going to get my stuff together. I'm going to get this application. I got in touch with you on Facebook. You sent me the paperwork and you said, I'm going to be at this convention. Just bring me the paperwork. Yep. I was like, all right, alhamdulillah. So, I got everything together, and then I remember when I met you, your phone was broken. And mm -hmm. I said, oh, I can fix it for you, and I brought the screen. And you, you were saying, all right, I'm gonna, I have to go give, do a, like a seminar. I'll be back in an hour. So I was sitting in the main hall, and I had all your phone parts like in my lap. I was just working on it, <laughs> waiting for you. And Milana's students got up to give a speech mm -hmm. about the Hausa in Florida. And I, I couldn't go anywhere else because I had all these little tiny screws in my lap. And I'm like, all right, I'm stuck here. So I'm, I'm being forced to listen to this speech from some of his students. Um, and I'm just listening, like, you know, kind of half listening, half working on it. And they're talking about all the classes they're studying with Moana Bay. They're talking about what kind of a teacher he is. They're talking about the other teacher that was there, Sheikh Avi Rashid. Talking about the books that they're going through and what the life is like in there. And I was like, just the whole time absorbing it while I'm putting your phone back together. And I'm like, you know, I want to go to Hausa <laughs> and it might be nice to like do pre Hausa or something like that for two years before I go like jump into Iran and maybe it's not what I thought it would be. So I remember I, after their speech was done, I had just finished with your phone and I went and sat down with you um, for coffee and I asked you what you thought about that idea. And you said, that's a great idea. Moana Beg's a teacher. Yeah, I, love um, him. I love him. He was on the previous podcast, by the way. Jeez. Yes. <laughs> but he's, he's an amazing scholar. And as all of the qualities that you said, down to earth, able to connect with people, able to give those one-on-ones. And he, he really, feel, it seems like he knows what, what needs to be done. Something special about him, because when I was in the Hausa, um, I did, I did a little bit of like, you know, work for him. Anytime I could help him and do anything for him, I wanted to assist him to be as close to him as possible. Um, so I've seen him interact with, you know, the least versed members of a community. And I've seen him interact in Qom, in Najaf, in Karbala, in Mashhad with like high ranking scholars. No matter who he sits with, he knows exactly how to talk to a person on the level that they're at. That was a, a very important skill I learned. You can't, you have to bring yourself down. And that's like something you learn, like when you take balaga, you know, you have to, it's not what you know, and you're showing off your vernacular when you speak. If you aren't putting your terms in, in term terminology that the audience would understand, you're a terrible, you're not eloquent at all. You're the opposite of eloquent. So I, I learned that by observing Milana, you have to be able to talk to each level of person on whatever level they're at. Yep. That was one of the great things, I, I, one of the most invaluable things I picked up watching Milana. Um, but you had said, yeah, it's a good suggestion. You endorsed it. You gave it your signature. 
So I said, all right, I'm going to try Milanis Hauser. So I did two years. I, I migrated from Detroit to Florida. And that was one decision I would never regret. Good. I hate Florida. It's hot. It's sticky. There's bugs everywhere. It's everywhere you go. This place is like a zoo. There's wildlife all over the place. Um, never seen anything like it in my life. But the two years in that Hauser, the amount of knowledge I got was just incredible. It was Literally, like it reminded me of the time when I was with Ali Tazavi. Now, just, you having studied. Just so, if anyone's Quran, listening, this is the Imam Ali Seminary. So, anyone. The Imam Ali Seminary. Anyone could look it up and find it. Molana Beg, you could look him up as well. So, anyone who's interested in going to the Hausa or going to a pre Hausa course in the West, definitely, again, I would give my endorsement for that. And it's all online now as well. So, you could be anywhere in the world and participate. Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely worth the time. Um, even if you can't do it full time, if you can attend like online part time, just the every single class I had with him, it was like I just relearned everything mm-hmm. and I learned it correctly. Um, there was something something you would understand having studied in Qom and having had teachers all over the world. Some teachers you get, you don't want to say they're bad teachers. You never want to say your, your stud is bad, but some teachers are somehow special yeah. and it's like five minutes with that teacher. You learn more than 10 years with another teacher. Yeah. Mana was one of those teachers. Like I remember for Akayat, every single class, it just like reshaped my mind and understanding of, of subject matter and just mm-hmm. completely changed the way I would look at things. And I was like, I thought I knew this before I, everything I thought I knew, I just threw away. I was like, whatever he just gave me is so much better than what I thought. Um, which really excited me for going to Qom. I just was getting more and more hyped up. I'm like, I can't wait to get there. To which it was somewhat of a disappointment because I did not have teachers like Milana Beg when I got to to Qom. Over the five years I've been there, I finally met a few teachers that that are like special, and I've learned that you really have to when you become a if you if somebody chooses to become a Hausa student. Don't assume every teacher you're going you're gonna to get is going to be an excellent teacher and you're just going to get a wealth of knowledge. There have been a few terms I have sat through, and at the end of the term I said, the only thing I learned was the name of the book. Mm. <laughs> I got nothing mm. from this class. Mm. But then there's a few teachers I've had where every hour I sit in his presence, it's like I, I picked up volumes of information. Yeah. So those are the teachers you want to find, and when you find them, Anytime they're teaching a class, you want to take that class. You want to always be present and absorb as much as you can so you can re-impart that knowledge when you go out. 100%. So after two years in Florida, um, I went on a Ziara trip with Malana Beg and his caravan, Caravan 72, and we went through Iraq and then Mashhad, and then I finally arrived in what has been my destination, Qom. So <laughs> and then it- that's the last. Let me let me stop you for a second. So with this Ziyarat trip that you went to with uh, Molana Beg, you said was the first was this the first time you were in the Middle East? This is the first time I left the United States, with the exception of one accident where I accidentally went to Canada. <laughs> <laughs> so um, how was it seeing that shrine for the first time? Remember, this is a Ziyarat trip, so I saw quite a few. Which one? The one the in Najaf, the one in Karbala. <laughs> The first one, uh, we, the first stop was in Najaf, and it, it it was everything I thought it would be. 
as a Western person who grew up in America, was not raised in Islam, it was like you've been to Najaf, so you, you're familiar with it, like the dusty streets. No, actually, and like I the haven't little... been to Iraq. Oh, you haven't been to Iraq? No, no, oh, well, I've only been let me enlighten Iraq. you. <laughs> Please allow me to inform you. It's it's very much what you would think. Parts of it are like buildings, construction, things, like that, and parts of it are like tent cities. Mm. And like you go down into like the bazaar, and it's like like something like out of Aladdin. Um, and it's just the, the clothing that they wear is all like distaches, thobes, things like that. Everybody's walking around in sandals and everybody's got a turban. It's like literally what you would imagine from watching every Disney cartoon that took place in the Middle East. Um, walking into the, the Haram of Imam Ali, it was, it was a very strong presence. It's like you felt it. And it was like the closer you got to it, it was a very like inviting presence. Um, it was just there was I don't know how to describe this other than it was like I'm in this incredible crowd of people. It's always crowded there. It's never not crowded. There's an incredible crowd of people, but it was like there's these moments where you literally feel like there's nobody there but you and your mom. And it's like all the noise, all the people, all everything going on around you, all the, the, the cacophony of sound and there's these moments where it's just like you can literally just in your mind see the entire thing empty and there's only the sound of still air and it's just like you and the Zori and the Imam and it's very peaceful even as busy as it is it's very peaceful then from there I remember we went to Karbala and I very distinctly remember being incredibly tired and I remember as we were the bus was getting closer like this feeling of like tightness like started hitting my chest like i thought i was having a panic attack or something and then i couldn't help it i just like started crying and then i looked up and i could see the haramein it was like we just passed that point on the road in where you are now in visual sight of it it was like as soon as my body was in line of sight with it it just knew and it was it was such an, a powerful emotion that as soon as we got to the hotel it's like you know if you like a relative that's very important to you dies or you have some tragedy happen, the emotional wreck that hits you, it like takes all the energy out of you and you just want to sleep. Mm. I remember I could barely get up to the room and I fell into bed and passed out. And then the caravan, the group, they all went with Milana. They went down, they did the whole Ziarat procedure. I woke up at like 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. And I was the only one awake in the caravan. And you, you can come and go as you please. So I was like, I missed going to do the art with the group. So I want to go myself. So I knew the hotel was nearby. So I just pulled up, you know, map real quick. Take a left here, right there, left here, right there. Okay, then I'm going to be there. And I remember going and it was off peak season. So there weren't a lot of Zawar. And it was like, even though I, I had the map and I was like, I didn't, I didn't even need to have looked at the map. It was like, you can just feel a draw to it. And then it's really like as beautiful as the Haramein are as beautiful as well they have it done up it's like there's just this immense sorrow mm. like the closer you get to it and I, I'll never forget that experience I, I've been back twice for Arbaeen uh, two, two times for Arbaeen um, but that first time I was there I just remember going there and I, by the time I got there to the door it was like three in the morning it was it wasn't empty, but it was very 
not crowded. <laughs> um, and I remember seeing the people going in there, and I just remember watching this one guy come in. Just looked like he hadn't eaten in, in five years. I mean, he was just this very skinny, and he had this disdasha, and he dropped his disdasha off. And like the closer he got, like his energy was raining out of him, and he just like dropped to his knees, and then he started crawling to the dory. And then he dropped to his stomach, and it was almost like he was barely being pull himself to the dory. And I'm watching all these people move towards it, and I'm just, I'm thinking to myself, like from outside myself, I'm like, what is this that draws so many people? What is this connection? Like it's, it's to me, it's like a jaze. It's like a, something like a miracle. And it hit me even harder when I came back for Arbaim that when I was making the, the walk from Najaf to Karbala, I, I, how many the millions of people I was walking with. And I was thinking, all right, in my life, my father died when I was four months old. My mother died when I was 10 years old. I've had aunts die, uncles die. So many relatives in my family have died. Uh, my life has been plagued with death. But... When I look at that, like back, I don't cry when I think about my mother. I don't cry when I think about my uncles or aunts that I was close to. I don't cry when I think about my dearest friends who have passed away that I was close to. But when, you know, I dwell and think hard on the Ahlul Bayt and Imam Hussein, the more I think about it, like I would start to cry. And I think, who is this? Like, what is this, this power that this has over us that this is a person we've never met in person and he's closer to us than our own blood in like terms of like pulling our emotions and captivating us and drawing in million, 22 million people a year that come there to mourn for Imam Hussein. To me, this was something like a mujaze. Like this is literally a sign from Allah that there's something powerful here that these children of Fatima Zahra, salam that they can invoke these emotions in us for people we've never seen with our own eyes thousands of years after they have passed when our mother might have died two years ago and we might not shed a tear anymore. Yeah, our own so mother true. brought us from So true. I, I know I haven't been to Najaf or Karbala, but I've been to Mashhad a number of times. So you, even there, you, you yeah, can share same it. thing. And I remember I remember first time that I saw Imam Rida salam. I remember going there and just being amongst the, I don't know how many people, so many people there, but as just like you said, like you, you forget that there's other people there. Like I'm walking through the courtyards, I'm getting closer and closer, and I'm, I'm by myself. Like there's no one with me. Like I, I know there, was, there were people with me, like I wasn't alone, but I just completely shut off to the world. And there was just a connection between me and the Imam. And I remember doing the the Ibn Dukhul and things like this and just it was killing me. Like like I was so full of emotion. And I remember that that days people would tie themselves up to a window outside of the Zari. I'm sure you've seen them, that people who are sick and terminally ill, they tie themselves up there. And it was Thursday night, so Dayat Juma. And I was there, they were reciting Dua Kormeo, and I was just sitting, I was sitting inside the building where I was looking at the Zuri, and 
the they were reciting the Quran, or not the Quran, sorry, the Dua, and they reached the end where they saw they say Ya Ismahu Dawa wa Dikruhu Shafa, and when they said that, I heard screams from outside, and one of the people who were tied up to the to that window apparently was miraculously cured from the disease that she had, and they blew the horn so when someone when a miracle happens, they blow this horn in the haram. And oh, it was just this amazing experience that I'll never forget that. Like I'll never forget that the rest of my life, that this this moment in this shrine, that this connection to the imam. And I don't know, it's amazing. It's amazing. Now, I know I, I really want to talk to you about the house and your experiences there because I'm sure it would be an an interesting topic inshallah next time we'd be able to do that because i'll have to actually go and get ready and cook iftar for the kids here so, ah yes <laughs> alhamdulillah so, yeah. don't, don't let me keep you from that yeah, especially make, make some pasta i think i'm gonna make pasta today inshallah that is always um, the right choice <laughs> and so it's definitely a blessing to be able to talk to you again and inshallah we'll keep more in touch Right? Yes, not, yes, no, I, I take full responsibility for this. I should no, keep in touch with I'm often. terrible at keeping in touch with people who are outside of the city that I'm living in. And it's 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 a You live on the wrong side of the planet. Yeah. I, I think if Australia wants to participate <laughs> with the rest of the world, you should all jump off your island and push it closer. Is that what we need to do? <laughs> Thirteen hour flight, sixteen hour flight to get there. Yeah, it's yes, fun. you it's should fun. push it closer. You need to come out here though, man. It's a, it's a beautiful community here. It'd be amazing to see. I, I, I've heard. I, I would definitely, when, one day, there's a lot of places I need to go in this world. A lot yes. of people keep inviting me to come here. Inshallah. Come Inshallah. Inshallah, Allah grants us both life long enough to, to see each other's, all the locations we need to go see. Inshallah. Inshallah, Inshallah Allah gives you the tawfiq and the blessings and uh, lets you come to uh, do uh, ziyarat in Iraq. Inshallah. I really want to. That's one of the one of the things I really want to do in my life, inshallah, is to go there at some point. Inshallah. So definitely we'll I'll have you on again at some point and we could talk all things house at that time, inshallah. Kind of see see how our experiences line up in the house. I'm sure we have similar experiences there as well. But there's definitely ups and downs which you referred to in the house and Alhamdulillah, was, it was, I had a great experience. I'm sure you're having a good experience, but there's always interesting interactions no, with the with the yeah. culture there. Yeah, yeah no, it, it'll be a wonderful, it'll be a good conversation. That, that, I'm yeah. still there after five years, and I have no intention of, of just dropping and leaving anytime soon. Good. So I, it, it can't all be bad. No, of course, of course. Inshallah, please pray for me on these, these nights, these holy nights, Laylatul Qadr and all of that. And I'll, I'll definitely keep you in my prayers as well. So with that, As-salamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa alaykum as-salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. What? You haven't subscribed yet? Mate, get on the ball. Subscribe to the channel.